It is so good to be with you this morning. I'm going to be sharing with you from Matthew chapter 10 as a background, but specifically looking at a story in Matthew chapter 11 that does not end the way that we expect it to end. Uh, and it, and when Jesus responded to the story, uh, his response, at least to me, I was in a, a dormitory that Chad's very familiar with on Georgetown College campus. I'd been a Christian less than two weeks. Someone had given me a Schofield Bible, and unless you're my age and of the old Southern Baptist world, you probably don't know that Bible, but it's about that thick and about this big, and about this much on the page is Bible, and about this much on the page is that guy's opinion, and it set me back about 10 years in my theological faith development, but anyway, that's all I knew. I knew there was an Old and New Testament, and I'm just devouring the Bible in those two weeks at college. For the first time, I find out where creation came from. I, I did not know that God spoke it into being. And as I just devoured the, the Old Testament and as I got into the New Testament and began to read of the life of John the Baptist, it's just like these stories are continuing. And Jesus is shaping his story and saying, as I send you out, well, if you look later on in, in, in Luke, Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, folks, that's one of the clearest vision statements that I've ever heard in my life. You ask Jesus why he's come. I'm come I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. That made a lot of sense to an 18-year-old student. What didn't make sense is how Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 10, he was going to accomplish that. He's going to accomplish that by sending you out, us out, as sheep among the wolves. Now, I grew up in rural Kentucky, and I know sheep, and I know beasts, I know coyotes, wolves gone a long time ago. But I know one thing, is that a, that sheep never won a single fight with a wolf. And yet, what Jesus is saying, the way I'm going to seek and save those who are lost is by sending you out as sheep among the wolves. And then he tells stories later in places like Luke 15 what that's going uh, to look like. And so uh, the kingdom of God is, is on a row. Jesus sends out the twelve. And they come back so excited about what they discovered about God when they crossed the street with the gospel. That's all they did for those two weeks or whatever number of weeks. Jesus sent out 12 
told them, don't take a purse with you. Don't take money with you. You're going to your own people, the Jewish people. You're going to go across the street from town to town. And, and, and they came back and they gave such a wondrous report. Jesus then sent out 72 to do the same thing. And so what he's doing here is helping us to catch the vision of what he's saying he is about and how he's going to accomplish it. And then John the Baptist shows up on this, in this story. Man, one of the toughest men you've ever met. Now, Ruth and I have lived in Jordan for three years. And we've been all up and down that area. We've had to be yards away from where John the Baptist baptized. And we can imagine in that heat and that dust that, can you imagine going out to John, never cut his hair? He wore camel hide clothing. How close have you been to a camel? If there's one animal on earth that deserves to be eaten, it's a camel. They spit, they bite, and if they ever offer you fried camel hump for breakfast, Go to McDonald's, you know, go to any, don't, just don't do that, okay? And, and here, John the Baptist is, is, is like David. He's like Elijah. He's like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. John, John the Baptist uh, is out there in the wilderness. Uh, he, he doesn't have deodorant. He doesn't have good hygiene. He doesn't cut his hair. It's a, probably a good thing that he's a baptizer, so that he, at least he's regularly in water, so some things can get rinsed off. And he eats what? Locust and honey. Well, you can eat a rock if you dip it in honey, but, but we've eaten what goes for locusts in rural Africa many times, and uh, those little legs get stuck in your teeth, and you, you can't hardly get them out, but, you know, not a bad source of protein, I guess. And, and, and here, here he is. Why? Why is he doing what he's doing? It's because the Jews stopped witnessing to their neighbors. And faith became defined by priests and, and a temple and, and the presence of God is locked behind an altar that only one man once a year can go in there and commune with Almighty God. Listen to your, your Uncle Nick. When, when you stop witnessing, your faith becomes a religion. And the quickest it becomes a religion, it becomes defined by priests and by temples. And you lock your altar away where the peoples of the world cannot access it. And, and, you, and we hide it in churches and we hide it behind pulpits and we chain it to the ministry of the clergy and the people of this world when they cannot access the altar of of God in the public arena, they quit seeking for him. And because the altar of God had become inaccessible, the people flocked to John 
because he proclaimed the coming kingdom of God and that he was accessible to to the people of God. And they flocked by the thousands uh, uh, to see him. And you talk about tough. John the Baptist is the nearest thing to a pastor that Jesus ever had. John the Baptist in his mother's womb danced in the presence of Mary carrying Jesus. John the Baptist said, I baptize with water. There's someone else coming that's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said, when that person comes, I'm not even worthy to unlatch the laces on his sandals. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And when Jesus asked John to baptize him, John said, No, it's better that I be baptized of you. And Jesus said, No, no, we're going to do it my way. Uh, That's what Jesus is still saying this morning. Are, Are you doing it his way? And John was there baptizing Jesus. And when Christ came out of the water, John was there when the, when the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. And John heard God say, in a, can you imagine the, the, the deepness and the volume of that voice that this is my son of whom I'm well pleased. John was a tough man where he lived, what he wore, what he ate. He was able to to look the Pharisees in the eyes and call them a bunch of snakes. And he was able to look Herod in the eye who thinks himself a God. And he said, Herod, you will not take your brother's wife into your bedroom and commit adultery with her. And he called Herod, who thought as as being part of the Godhead himself, Herod thought he could do anything he wanted to. And John reminded him, proclaimed to him, the altar of God says to you that there is an accounting for your life. And they did to John what they've done to us for thousands of years. They put John in prison. And John is just hours, hours away, days at the most of having his head separated from his shoulders. And I am so enamored with John, the way he stood up for the kingdom of God, the way he proclaimed the kingdom of God, the way that he offered his pastoral services to even Jesus the Christ. And here's John in prison about to lose his head. And and he hears what Jesus is doing, how his ministry is going. And he sends his disciples to Jesus. What would you expect? This tough, prophetic, wilderness living man to ask of Jesus. Well, the opposite of what he did. Here's the toughest man in the New Testament we've met up to now. And he sends word to Jesus wanting to know, are you the one or do we wait for somebody else? I remember sitting in Anderson Hall at Georgetown College where Chad was going to attend Felt like 50 years later. Um, and, and reading this story and thinking, what a wimp. 
What, what, how, how, how could John in a prison cell run away from Jesus like that? How, how could John uh, not stand up for the Christ that he had proclaimed all of those years? And, 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 and it's, it's, it's really bad when John doesn't do what you thought he would do. It's even worse when Jesus' answer to him is totally off the charts, different from what you expect. I mean, if somebody asked you tomorrow, man, I would pray for this to happen. Somebody asked you today, how do you know that Jesus is the Christ? What are you going to say to them? You know, probably if you're of church background, especially if you've been in any kind of seminary, you're going to use words about this big, talking about, you know, how he was ordained before the foundation of the earth and he's the Alpha and the Omega and all, all this stuff. And Jesus says, you go back and tell John this. You tell him what you see and you tell him what you hear early in chapter 11 of the book of Matthew. He said, go back and tell John that the blind receive sight, the deaf hear, the lame are walking, the lepers are being cleansed. People are being raised from the dead and the gospel. The gospel is not being held just for people of wealth and position and power. The gospel is being preached to the poor people. Listen to Uncle Nick. Jesus did an astounding thing. This is what your pastor, if I understand right, is leading you over weeks and months to consider that from the very mouth of Jesus himself, when you talk about the authenticity, how do you prove the authenticity of Jesus as Lord and Savior? You might want to talk about this altar. You might want to talk about here's what goes on to the church. What Jesus said is that his Messiahship, that knowing that he's the Christ is always authenticated by what you and what I do in the marketplace in the name of Jesus. That's where Jesus's Messiahship is made known and is authenticated. It's not in the church. It's not in a revival service necessarily. It's not in a convention or a meeting of tens of thousands of Christians. How people know if Jesus is who he says he is, is by what you do with Christ as you cross the street and as you cross the oceans. This is where you come to celebrate what Jesus has done with you out where the, the blood and the sweat and the tears take place. You, you see, what, what I'm about this morning, and, and very quickly I hope, and probably you hope, is, is uh, I, want, I want you to look through a, a window really quickly about and see what God is doing around the world. And then maybe even more quickly... Uh, let you see how the church in persecution uh, that that Ruth and I sort of specialize in looks and talks about you. Now, um, after being in Somalia for eight years, when when Mama and I 
went there, there were about 150 followers of Jesus. When we left, only four were left alive. Do y'all know that? When you, when you think about Somalia, you probably think Black Hawk Down or you think about Somali pirates. But what we think about is 150 followers of Jesus from Muslim background. They killed four of our best friends on one day in 45 minutes. They planned it. Fundamentalists planned it. They stalked these Somalis who had converted to Jesus. And in 45 minutes uh, in August of one year, they walked up and, and put a gun to the back of our brother's head and put a bullet there and then took their bodies and threw them in latrines and threw them in toilets and threw them in the oceans to the sharks and did away with their bodies. We went for 25 years among believers in Somalia, not Ruth and I, but the body of Christ, 25 years, every Somali man and woman killed or who died for their faith, Muslims took their bodies and threw them away, and we've never had for 25 years until 1993 a Somali's body at their own funeral. That's what evil does. But what we want to talk about is what God does. We went from that experience, uh, and it's in the time that we met your pastor, and and Ruth and I spent almost 10 years going to 72 countries talking to brothers and sisters who every day live in environments of persecution where their faith in Jesus costs them their children, their job, their freedom, and their lives. And 70% of all believers practicing their faith live in environments like that. And we have sat with over 300 Muslims who have come to Jesus. And, and in, in 90, probably around 95% of the Muslims who have come to Jesus in the time that Ruth and I have been talking with them, they start by coming to Jesus through dreams and visions. They, they hear a voice without a body saying, Find Jesus, find the gospel. They'll see a vision of the angel Gabriel telling them to, to look for the Christ. They'll dream of a Bible and they're told to find this book and to read it. And they generally, by the time a Muslim comes to faith, they've read the Bible through from Genesis to Revelation three to five times. A Muslim at their baptism... A Muslim at their baptism will know more Bible than most Christians know when they die. Because they're so hungry for the Word of God. And in 95, 97% of their, uh, of how Muslims are coming to faith, this is what precipitates their looking for Jesus. Dreams and visions don't save anybody. Only Jesus saves. And, and, and people wonder, uh, how, how can I say, you see, here, here's the lie that Satan might have caused you to believe. Oh, it is everywhere we've gone in the Christian religious world. And, and this lie goes something like this, that the Bible is an old book. It's a infallible, inerrant, authoritative 
record of what God used to do. And what's the implication? That somehow God's not doing this stuff anymore. And what Ruth and I are here to testify in that 35 years overseas, that every that everything that God has ever done in the Bible, God is still doing. See, you don't worship a past tense God. You worship a God who is in present active tense. You don't, you don't follow an old book. You're following a map that shows you spiritually where to go this very day and how to take Jesus to the marketplace. When we sit with thousands, well, representatives of thousands of Hindus, just like in Matthew chapter 11, when we go to low caste Hindus, there's one, there's one medical doctor for every one million low caste Hindus. Oh, what a sin. How horribly they are sinned against. They, they, they will go uh, grandparents to parents to children to their children's children's children. And they never will see a medical doctor. And just like in Matthew chapter 11, these young evangelists who have come out of Hinduism are going from village to village to village asking people if they're sick. Finding a hundred percent sick, asking them, are you wanting to be healed? They say, of course, yes. And in the name of Jesus, just like Christ said to John the Baptist through his disciples, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, those who are perceived to be dead are being raised. And you talk about poor people, if they have any money, income whatsoever, it will be a dollar less a day. And what we're seeing among low caste Hindus all over India is that they're baptizing around twenty to 40,000 a month. Now, why wouldn't you want to go look at that? Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Why, why wouldn't you want to see what Jesus is going in the marketplace? And when Ruth and I went to China, the first thing they said to us there is, is Dr. Nick, has Jesus made it to, to other countries or has he just made it to China so far? That's how locked behind a bamboo curtain they were. Up to 1970, every Chinese house church we could find started through miracles of healing. Now, now, now let's pause and ask ourselves the question. Why does God give dreams and visions to Muslims? What would you have God do when there's 1.5 million Muslims for every one missionary that's trying to take the gospel to them? What, what is God supposed to do? How is God supposed to reach uh, low caste Hindus when you're looking at millions, millions of Hindus will not only never see a medical person, they'll never meet anybody who's known to be a follower of Jesus. How would you have God reach them? 
And we, the, the Chinese uh, said to me, uh, uh, Dr. Nick, 40% of us as leaders, as, as church people, have already been to prison for three years. And they said, prison in China is our theological seminary, Nick. Now, now that you're in China for some months, how many degrees would you like to have? And I said, uh, I, I'm good. I'm good. Mama needs me back in Kentucky. So, you know, I, I'd love to go to school, but uh, I, I think I, I better go home and see how mom's doing and how the boys are. And you know what, folks? Uh, they change the days of the week they worship. They change the hours of the day they worship. They move from house to house, changing the days of the week, the times of the days. Uh, It's not whether or not they're going to prison. It's not if, it's just when. And so they try to do their witness and their ministry in such a way that they don't go to prison prematurely. Now, I don't know how you go to prison maturely, but... No, I do know how you go to prison maturely. Because as one a group of brothers said, when we went to prison, we barely knew who Jesus was. And we didn't know our songs. We didn't know how to pray. We did not memorize. We had not memorized scripture. And so uh, we were in prison for three years and we hid in that prison and we told nobody who Jesus was. And they confessed to the 170 leaders sitting on the ground as I had interviewed them. They said, listen to this man. Listen to this man. You can't start your relationship with Christ learning the Bible, learning the songs, learning how to witness once you're inside a prison you can only grow in persecution what you take into persecution when it comes wow I woke up one morning and I was walked out amongst the Chinese house church leaders and they're sitting on the ground about 150 of them and there was weird stuff going on. They had this big book and they were tearing this book into shreds. And when I walked over, I saw where they were tearing their Bibles up. And the interpreter saw the look of horror on my face and he came over and he said, Nick, it's not what you think. You, you've been preaching straight through the book of Luke every night after interviewing for 14 hours. And they're so hungry as leaders to have the complete word of God. These 150 plus leaders, there's only seven Bibles among them in this, at this time in China. And so they made a vow unto God that everybody would go home to their village or their city from this meeting with at least one book of the Bible. And they would go to someone like Chad and ask him, have you taught Genesis in your church? And if Chad shook his head no, they carefully tore it out and let him go back to his place of service with Genesis. They'd ask this brother, have you, have you taught Ezekiel? No. Carefully tear it out. Ask this lady, have you, do you have the hymn book of the Bible, the Psalms to sing in your village? And she said, I didn't even know we had 
had a hymn book in the Bible and they tore out the Psalms and gave it to her and she took it back. And and I'm watching them and I, I felt so sorry for the guy that got Philemon. Can you imagine that you, father-in-law, get to go home with the book of John and your son-in-law goes home with third John, half a page. I tell you what, this guy's going to be elevated. This guy's, they're going to fire him. Can't you do better than third John? And I watched this kind of stuff happen. And then the Chinese began to ask me about you. And how you do this, and how you do this, and how you do this. And as I explained to them how we do church in America, they begin to sob. These are men and women who have been to prison, some of them multiple times. They've got the scars on their backs to prove it. And and I'm describing you to them, and they just go into this sobbing Sucking air, uh, weeping and brokenness. And, and I said to them, what did I say that hurt you so bad? Uh, they said, you don't know, you don't understand. I said, Ruth's not here to tell me what I've done wrong. I'm surprised that a guy laughed because usually guys don't laugh because you know it's true. And, and they said, you, you don't understand, you don't see. I said, Ruth's not here. And they asked me, Dr. Nick, why does God love his children in America so much more than he loves his children in China? And I'm saying, wait a minute. Hundreds of thousands of you have been healed by God. Uh, you've, You've brought tens of thousands of people to Christ in prison through your faithfulness and your witness. Uh, you you move the the places where you worship. You you change the time of day. And China is the fastest growing location of Christianity on the planet. And and this is all that I have heard from them. And they said, "You really don't understand." I said, "I don't know. I don't have a clue what you're talking about." They said, "They said Ripken, which is the greatest miracle?" That you watch us tear our Bibles in shreds so that everybody here this morning can have at least one book of the Bible. And you're telling us that in Ethiopia where you live, you have seven different versions of the Bible on your desk just for you. Which is the greatest miracle, boy? You've watched us. That maybe God heals a hundred thousand Chinese. Maybe a hundred figure out that healing came from God. And maybe three figures out that that God's name is Jesus. And you tell us that whenever you come back to America, you can call a, a orthopedic surgeon in, in Florida. And you can go there on a Sunday, see him on a Monday, be x-rayed and have an MRI on Monday afternoon and Tuesday morning. He fix your knee or he fix your shoulder or, or you get uh, addressed, whatever it is. And you can go to a Baptist hospital, to a Baptist 
orthopedic surgeon, deacon, and, 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 and before they operate on you, he and the nurse and the anesthetist, they surround your bed, lay hands on you, and pray for you in Jesus' name. They said, we want to know, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle? You've watched our pastors stand one step ahead of the security police. And yet 40% of us have already been in prison for our faith. And we're preparing the other 60% for their time. And you're telling us that Chad and a visitor, if we wanted to, if you would allow, could stand here and preach and talk about the kingdom of God inside this building and outside of this building. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And you're telling us nobody goes to prison. Nobody's beaten. Nobody loses their job. Nobody has their kids taken for them, from them. Nobody is forced to divorce their husband and married off to a pagan weeks later. You're telling us that you can stand here 24-7 proclaiming God inside, outside, and nothing's going to happen to you. Which is the greatest miracle? And you tell us that you have these praise bands and these choirs and you have TV stations and radio stations and you have all kinds of electronic forms of music and, and you can sing it, uh, you can act it out. You can go to Christian music, concerts, and I watched them. Can't tell you where we were, but I watched them. Where a family of four gets together and their knees are touching. They're in that type of an environment. And when they come to sing in the, their family worship, their lips move, but they don't allow the song to come out of their mouths. Because if they're, what they're singing carries through the paper thin walls of the apartment or out the window of their village house, and someone hears it, the security police is going to be there by dark that night. And someone, if not everyone, in that family is going to go to jail. You, you see, I've met John the Baptist all over the world. And I myself, when my back was against the wall, I cried out and wanted to know for sure, is Jesus who he says he is? Or have my wife and I and our three kids spent 35 years overseas for what? And we buried our 16-year-old son who died on Easter Sunday morning. He was about eight days after his 16th birthday. Was that for nothing? Or are you the Messiah? And should we wait for something else? We found every believer when their backs are against the wall, all of us ask a question just like that. But I want you to hear something from me in closing. I really... I'm not going to lose sleep tonight if you don't believe that God is sending Muslims dreams and visions by the hundreds of millions. Uh -uh, that's their miracle. 
I'm not going to lose sleep tonight if among you the blind are not seeing, the lame are, are not walking, and the deaf are not hearing. It's going to bother me, but really in a very intense way, that is the miracles that are going on among low caste Hindus this day all over India. That's their their miracles. I, I'm not I'm not going to get bent out of shape if you don't believe that Chinese are leading tens of thousands of people to Christ in prison, seeing that as their theological seminary. That seems to be the grace and the miracles that God has given them. What will cause me to be broken? What will cause me to lose sleep? What will cause me to just cry out to God asking for his mercy if you continue to see what you have here this morning as normal? You see this as common and and worse than anything, perhaps. Oftentimes, we've experienced this as, as, as church for so many years, we, we think this is what we deserve. And if we don't like it here, we can go find it better somewhere else. You see, what I've watched, what Ruth and I have watched, we've watched Muslims claim their miracles from God and be changed by the grace of Jesus Christ. We've watched Hindus accept that their healing came from Jesus Christ and through the blood of Christ have their lives changed. We've seen Chinese now, uh, the, the best that we can find out is that there's 85 million Chinese now today have been, now it's tomorrow, that's hard to get around your head, isn't it? Uh, 85 million of them have worshipped this weekend in house churches from place to place, usually in groups no longer uh, uh, than, than 30. And that's what God is doing in their midst. But when I describe what you do here, what you have here, what how you can freely proclaim, worship, sing, talk, present the gospel without any any repercussions apparently whatsoever. The Chinese break down worshiping and they want to know why does God love his children in America so much than he more than he loves his children in China. I'm asking you, church, I'm I'm in a sense begging you, church, will you Claim your miracle this morning. Will you understand that I can say to you here today that the altar of God is open to you. Sunday after Sunday, week, month, year after year. And for most of the world, they don't even have a John the Baptist in the wilderness saying, Here, come to the River Jordan. The altar of God is being experienced here and you can walk into the kingdom of God here will you claim what the rest of the believing world sees as your miracle sent from heaven these these 
these families sitting with their knees touching, not allowed to have their voices carry outside. Can you imagine them sitting here this morning singing out loud? That Chinese evangelist in that prison cell. Oh, we went to a labor camp in the Soviet Union. They put 242 pastors in that labor camp. Not a one of them were alive three months later. That's in my lifetime. Can you imagine those pastors witnessing to the other prisoners in that labor camp and to those who were called to cause their death? All of them. You're part of that. That's what we call church. And the body of Christ. As we continue worshiping uh, together. I I hope you'll have a heart change. I, I hope that you'll hear echoing in your soul. Me saying something. I can't say to most of the world today I can't say to them Here, here's the altar of God and it's open to you 24-7 whenever you want to come I can't say that to about 4 billion people on this planet what I'm begging you to do is to consider and accept what the rest of the world sees what you got here you have here As a miracle from the throne of God, this is not normal. This is not common. And this is not what we deserve. Pray with me. Father, as we continue to worship, may we do so with a much greater, deeper, broader, wider sense of absolute astonishment and all that you would you would for some reason it's not political it's not economic but spiritually you have given us a season of life where we are free to believe uh, free to go deep with you free to worship and to share our faith with everyone we meet Father, help us to claim our miracle this morning, which is the body of Christ that, uh, that, that, that praises here what we have done in the marketplace this week. Father, we don't deserve this. This is not common. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that your altar is open to us. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, our Christ. Amen.